0: It is not a understatement to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very heart of Christianity. There are certain things that we believe as Christians that make us what we would call Orthodox Christians or that make us within the camp of historical Christians. There are certain things that people believe that are aberrant that we would put them outside of the realm of historical Christians. Things like believing in the virgin birth, believing in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit three being distinct and yet being one. These are historical things, but all of them are attested to by the resurrection. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen, then none of those things matter. It's not an exaggeration to say that Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me show you a couple of verses that tell us that. First of all, we have in Romans 10, 9, where Paul is describing how it is that you and I are saved. What is it that causes us to have something happen inside of us that we now have a relationship with him? And here's what he says. He says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation comes by making Jesus your Lord. You're saying, I'll do what you want me to do. You're my Lord. And you believe in the resurrection, which is the first fruits of our own resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19, Paul is addressing a group of people at the Corinth Church who have begun to believe that the resurrection was only spiritual, that it didn't happen physically. And so Paul is addressing that in this lengthy chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about the resurrection, then he talks about our own resurrection. It's here in this chapter that he says that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, this corruptible will put on incorruptible and this mortal will put on immortality one day we will be raised in glorified bodies we will not have bodies that are breaking down forever in fact in the book of revelation heaven is described by what's not there there's no more pain there's no more sorrow there's no more lame there's no more tears that's the description of heaven as we have our glorified bodies so paul is writing against those who are denying the resurrection and here's what he says this is 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, and, and also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable." If in this life we only have hope in Christ and not in the life to come, we're the most pitiable. Why? Why would he say that? I've had people upset over that verse. Why, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, am I the most pitiable of all people? Because as a Christian, we are asked to sacrifice. We are asked, if you, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, then deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Paul said in Corinthians, the life that I now live in Christ is not my own life, but the life that I now live, I live for him. So you are asked to stop living for yourself and begin to live for Christ. In Philippians, we're told, put other people's interest above your own interest. This is not the way that people in the world live. They don't get up in the morning and think, how many people can I put above my own interest? It says not only look out for your own interests, but the interests of other people. This is the Christian life that we are to live, and we live it by faith. We take the last place. Jesus said, he who is last will be first, and he who is first will be last. He said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then learn to be a servant of all. The whole Christian life is self-sacrificial. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then all of our sacrifices mean nothing. And that's the point that he was making. And this is the reason that I say it is not an understatement to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very heart of the gospel. And that's in the passage that we're covering today. Now, I just want to consider before we get into this passage, the idea of whether or not there is the supernatural most people when told believe in the supernatural in fact the majority of people have had an event that has happened in their lives that they would say is supernatural it it can't happen naturally something else had to happen i believe god allows those supernatural events to point to him that there's more than just this body There are materialists in the world. There's not a large number of them and not a large percentage of them. A material, and you may be here, you may be a materialist. A materialist believes there's nothing here but the material. And that our bodies are nothing more than kind of a a meat sack. Our brains control things and there's electronic pulses going through our brains and it uh, releases chemicals. And that's the feelings that we have that are a release of chemicals. And if that is the case, then there would be nothing supernatural that would ever happen. It would all only be natural things. But there are so many things that happen that we cannot describe. And there are some areas that people are beginning now to explore which reveal supernatural events. One of them is near-death experiences. There's a book that's been written by Gary Habermas, excuse me, Gary R. Habermas and J.P. Moreland on near death experiences where they've gone in and documented the cases. Now, it's not what they see when they die on the operating table or they have a heart attack and are resuscitated. It's not that some of them see a light, some of them see heaven, some of them see hell, some of them see very beautiful scenes, some of them see very terrifying scenes. That could all be explained by the moment of death, your mind going into a dreamlike state, and you seeing some things that may be connected to the way that you think that's not what makes the study of near-death experiences a revelation of the supernatural it's that the people that have had them that some of them know things they shouldn't know they they die on the operating table and this is documented in their book this is not just them telling you stories they're talking to the doctors and to the families and to the people who were there these are documented cases where someone dies on the operating table, they have no brain waves, their heart is not beating, they're working hard to resuscitate them. When they come to, they are able to tell them what was taking place in the waiting room. They, they talk about being outside of their body. There are some amazing things that they are documenting that show that our mind and our brain are different. That when the brain has no brainwaves in near-death experiences, people are knowing things they shouldn't know. And I encourage you to get their book if you if you if you want to look at this. If you are one who goes, well, I don't know if there's any supernatural. I think you're going to be amazed um, when you look at this book. And um, let me get to the title of it here. Uh, It's the the title of the book is uh, Immortality, the Other Side of Death, Gary R. Habermas and J.P. Moreland. The subtitle of the book is The Evidence of Life After Death, What Near-Death Experiences Tell Us. There's also some studies that are being done now, which are really interesting, where they are studying people when they die. And the things that they know when they die and the things that they say before they die that have a supernatural connection to it. Now, all this to go into... If if there's the supernatural that's out there, then you can't write anything supernatural off. And if God wants to give us a sign by raising someone from the dead, that we have a hope for all of eternity because someone who came and did miracles, the supernatural pointed for us and became the first fruits of the resurrection, that we could have our hope in him. Now, we live in the information age. And we know a lot more about the time that Jesus lived now than ever before. And we have many people that have attested historically. These are, these are, this is not the canon of scripture. These are historical events and we've learned that. But taking scripture out of the way and looking at Roman sources, Greek sources, and Jewish sources, that would have no reason to talk about an empty tomb. If anything, they would want to hide the empty tomb that have written about the fact that there was an empty tomb and that Christianity exploded on the scene because of the empty tomb. In other words, they're not going to say a resurrection, but they're going to point to the empty tomb, that on that third day, that tomb was empty, empty, and you and I know that the explosion that caused Christianity to bless all nations, which was foretold in Genesis 18, to Abraham, that in you, one of your descendants is going to bless all nations, it was a promise of the Messiah, we know the event that caused it to explode around the world was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That these, these people saw him and they told people who they saw. And these very dejected, grief-filled people suddenly changed and began to tell people about Jesus Christ and seeing him and what he wanted. Now understand, they didn't have to have a resurrected Jesus. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, they could still follow him. They could still be Christians. They could still follow the things that he said. There was no reason they had to have it. There were other Jewish Messiah types that had died and their followers continued to follow him it wasn't like we have to have a resurrection or nothing the resurrection saying that something impossible happened making up a story like that would cause them to be questioned and would cause them to have all kinds of difficulties and problems and they did now with that out of the way let's take a look at this early Christian Creed a portion of this starting in verse five is dated to before paul wrote it here paul says i didn't come up with this i I gave you what i received and this is believed to be an early christian creed that they used to memorize the the heart of what christianity was we've identified several of them in the bible these are little statements uh and and this is very jewish and remember the first christians were jewish Uh, They have the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. They have statements that they have learned. Now, I have a lot of verses that I memorized when I was a kid. But inside of my mind, before uh, before I was 10 years old, I have all kinds of intro songs to sitcoms that I can give you every word for. (laughs) I can give you every word for Gilligan's Island, for for Green Acres, for Beverly, Hillbill- I have Beverly Hillbillies. I can, I, and trust me, I can fire it off. And you guys know it's true, because you guys can do the same thing. I can do the Star Wars, it's just in there. It's useless information, it will never help me. But because it was put in a little ditty, I learned it, and it's still there all of these years later. And that's how they learned and taught their children in their day. We do that the same. We teach our children an ABC song in order for them to learn the ABCs. So they would put them in in what what theologians call creedal form. Their creeds. They put them in creedal form so they could memorize them and learn them. Now, Paul's going to start by introducing this creed. And this is in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This whole chapter is about the resurrection. He says this. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. He has preached the gospel to them. The gospel, it says, is the power of God to salvation. Romans 10 says people are not going to believe unless they hear and they can't hear unless someone preaches. And, unless, and, 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 and beautiful are the feet of those who preach. It's not saying that all preachers have beautiful feet. It's saying that the message that we bring has to be brought. Churches t- today are neglecting the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is a tragedy because we are saved by the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. And so Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you. And then he says four things, which you also received, by which you stand, in which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. So when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he's about to give you in creedal form, when you hear that, if you believe it, if you stand on it, you will be saved by it if you hold fast to it. So it's a continual thing that you have to have, but you believe it, you receive it, you stand on it. And that is salvation. It's how we know the one true living God. It's how we enter into a relationship with him. And the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away and behold, everything becomes new. And then he says a statement, which is a little bit, we listen to it and go, what does he mean there? He says, unless you believed in vain. Now, why would Paul, talking about believing the gospel, standing on it, believing it, receiving it, or walking in it, unless you believed in vain? Because it's possible that you could believe all of these things and not want to give your life to Christ. It's possible that you could believe that God exists, that he rose from the dead, that he died on the cross for your sins, and you're like, I don't want to live for him. I've had people tell me, I believe what you're saying to me but I'm going to give my life to Christ once I get out of high school. I remember one particular guy that I had talked to and and worked with, and he said to me, he just quite frankly said to me, if I give my life to to Christ, I'm going to have to stop having sex with my girlfriend, right? And I said, yes. And he said, then I'll wait till after I'm married. And I was like, well, you know, today if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. And there are sacrifices that are made when you surrender your life to Christ and you begin to live for him. But you believe in vain. So he believed, he said he believed what I said, but he wasn't ready to do it. He believed in vain. James in James 2:19 says this, the demons believe and tremble. That's demonic faith. They believe, but they're not going to follow. And so Christian, or, or people who believe but don't give their lives to Christ, don't become Christians, have a demonic faith. Now the good news is that at any moment you could say, I'm ready to follow him. I'm not going to live my life for me anymore. I'm done with that. I'm ready to live for him now. And if you do that, then you will find the forgiveness that this all talks about. So now he introduces the creed and we find it starting in verse 3. He says, for I deliver to you First of all, that which I received. So this isn't coming from Paul. Paul didn't come up with this. I'm delivering what I received. And then he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and the twelve, and after that by over 500 at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all of the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time." Paul is telling us he is an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ, that he saw him. Now let's break down what this creed said. First of all, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Within the Gospel is something supernatural. That Jesus died for our sins and the scriptures foretold that. Now we know that Jesus went to the cross and he bore the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any other way, then take this from me. But he went out and he met the cross. He was beaten that night. He was scourged. He carried the cross and became exhausted. They had another man carry it for him. They nailed him to that cross, his hands and feet, and put him up. And he hung for six hours before they came to check on him, found him dead, put a spear into his side. Water and blood came out. They took him down from there and they buried him. That's what Jesus did. Now, the Old Testament said that the Messiah was going to die for the sins of mankind. It wasn't something they came up with afterwards. It wasn't like, well, Jesus got the wrong people mad and then he got himself crucified. I know, let's say he died on the cross for our sins. Before it ever happened, it was foretold. Isaiah 53, verses four through six, listen to what it says. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced, For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. There it is, foretold in the Scriptures. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The Bible says, And he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. All of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin was bore by Jesus on the cross. The next thing that this creed says is that he was buried, which is an interesting thing to say. And by some people, it's just treated kind of like as a side note, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he was buried, and that's in verse 4. But this is here for a very specific reason. Because you don't bury live people. The fact that he was buried is a statement that he was dead. So you've got, because there's so much historical evidence and historical by the the historians that have written about it, and also the individuals that we know who were historical, Pilate, Caiaphas, All of these people that were involved were historical and the tomb was empty on that third day. Otherwise, Christianity would not have spread. They could have just produced the body and killed Christianity in its infancy, but it didn't happen. And so because of that, they come up with all kinds of wild stories as to what happened, why it couldn't be a resurrection. One of them is that Jesus swooned on the cross. Now, this is an old one, but it's been revived here lately that he didn't really die. He just looked like he died. He was just mostly dead. He wasn't completely dead. And they took him down from the cross and they buried him. And and the coolness, the dampness of the tomb woke him up. And he got up and rolled the stone away and then walked out and presented himself as resurrected from the dead to the saints. Now, the problem, of course, is that he was beaten all night that he was scourged and many people died from being scourged. He was so exhausted, he couldn't carry the cross all the way to Golgotha, but they had to get Simon the Cyrenian to carry the cross for him. They nailed him to the tree and hung him up on it for six hours, which is six hours of writhing in pain. And then he died. They took him off of the cross and then they wrapped him in spices. The people wrapping him in spices would know that he is dead. Put him in the tomb. And the coolness of a tomb doesn't revive. When's the last time you went into a hospital and they went, let's go put him in that stale, cold room in the back. We'll see how they recover from that. The coldness of the, the dampness of the tomb would further, if he was alive, would kill him. But then he got up on nailed feet and nailed hands, rolled away the stone, beat up the Roman soldiers and said, I'm alive, I'm here. It doesn't make any sense. These are the kind of stories they have to come up with because we know the tomb. You would not have people coming up with these kind of stories if, they, if, if people didn't know the tomb was empty. Think of the first, the, the early enemies. They said the disciples stole the body. That's what the first enemies did. They didn't have to say the disciples stole the body if the, if the tomb wasn't empty. We know that it was empty. And so the creed says he was buried. And then, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now that's the end of the gospel creed. We're going to get the accounts of his appearances in a moment, but this is the end of the, the credo portion of it. That he died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and then he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. The Bible foretold the supernatural account of Jesus rising from the dead. And there are a few places in the Old Testament that speak of this. We have Isaiah 53, which talks about him dying and yet seeing his days. We have Psalms 22, in which he perishes and yet still lives. We have Psalm 16. And this is the one that Peter used when he gave the first sermon 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. Peter said that, it says in Psalm 16:10, David said, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And then he said, And we have David's tomb here today, so we know we had to be talking about the Messiah. Let me read the passage to you out of Psalm 16. This is the one Peter quoted. It says, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also must rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. All of that so far is David. But then he says this, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David died and his body was corrupted. Jesus was resurrected. And so it foretold again something supernatural that he would rise again and it was foretold. That the Bible can foretell things and is full of prophecy is one of the signs that we should understand, believe, and trust the things that are written here. Now, then he goes into this section where he starts talking about the people that saw him. He says he was seen, first of all, by Cephas. This is Peter. And we aren't told this account anywhere in the New Testament. We're told that he was seen by Peter, but we don't know what Jesus said to him or what Peter said to him. And maybe for good reason. This needed to be a very personal moment between Peter who denied the Lord and the Lord showing that he was alive and and, and starting the restoration of Peter. Then he was seen by the 12. Now, there were only 10 of them there that night and 11 because Judas is gone. Okay, so the 12 was a reference to the apostles here. And after that, he was seen by, by 500 brethren at once. So those who say that these guys were so distraught that they had hysteria and they saw Jesus, you have 500, you have mass hysteria. This has never been, never, never in history have they had mass hysteria. It goes on to say, of whom the greater part remain to this present. He's saying you can go and talk to them. This is written within 20 years. The creed probably goes back to, to five years, maybe even sooner But this portion is 20 years. He says, you can go talk to them. He says, some have fallen asleep, and he means died. After that, he came, uh, he was seen by James. Now, this isn't James the apostle, not James the younger, James the older, They're already accounted for here. This is James, the brother of Jesus. After Mary gave birth to Jesus, she had a normal sexual relationship with her husband, Joseph. And the Bible tells us that they had other brothers and, 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 and sisters as well. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus' brothers came because they thought he was out of his mind and they tried to rescue him. They thought, this, he's gone too far. And so they showed up. And, and when they told him, your mother and your brother's here, Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Except those that are doing the word of God. So he wouldn't go with them at that particular point. Now later on, James, the half-brother of Jesus, became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He became the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem and undeniably the leader, when you're reading through the book of Acts, which we're studying now on Sunday mornings, and we'll be getting to this here. But I like what Frank Turek says at this point. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Messiah, right? And so for James, who thought his brother was out of his mind, to suddenly believe that Jesus was the Messiah and become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem would take a resurrection and appearance. And then for Peter, who, who then he goes on to say, "Then by all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me also, by the one as one bore out of due time." Now Paul says, "I'm an eyewitness. This is an eyewitness account of him saying, I saw him and as one who was born out of due time. Now, he was an enemy of the gospel. He, he cast lots for Christians to be killed. He pursued them to other cities. He thought his zeal was for God. What does it take for an enemy of something to be turned and to be for something? It takes some kind of a radical event for, for things like that to happen. Here it was, the resurrection. Now, there are a few things we're not talking about. We're not talking today about why there was no need for a resurrection. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. Dr. De, uh, Jeremiah Johnston, in his book, The Body of Proof, gives seven evidences for the resurrection. And in it, he talks about the fact that there was no need. They didn't have to come up with a resurrection. The disciples... Uh, if the disciples made up the resurrection, they did a bad job. Later on, there are the, um, the Gnostic Gospels that are written. And you remember that Dan Brown in his movies tried to say that there was the Christian form in the Gnostic Gospels and they were being fought over and finally Christianity won and the Gnostic Gospels left. The Gnostic Gospels try to fix the problems that the resurrection has in the Bible. Number one, that it was seen by women. Because women, they're, they're, this is, this is not me saying this, ladies. This is what they believed in their day. That the testimony of a woman was not as strong as the testimony of a man. So in the Gospel of Peter, which is a Gnostic gospel written hundreds of years afterwards and not written by Peter, they have Jesus coming out of the tomb and he's a giant and he appears to Pilate. So they bring him out and they're trying to fix the problems that they see that the disciples would have made. Now, there are many other things like this if you're interested in it let me encourage you to be astute to be a student you can dive into these we live in the information age and there are so many books that you can read on it I'll give you another suggestion there's a book by Frank Turek Frank's gonna be here speaking on a Sunday morning uh, in December and uh, he's got a book called I don't have enough faith to be an atheist and he goes over a lot of the evidences for the resurrection in that book that's a good place for you to start. And then there's so many other things. Now, three things in closing, because I need to. Number one, have you believed? Have you received? Are you standing on? And have you been saved by the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation? Have you said, I'm done living for myself, Lord, and I'm now ready to live for you? I want you in my life. The Bible says in John 1:12, as many as receive Him." He gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. If you would believe in him and invite him in, he will adopt you into your family. You will be, you will gain an inheritance from him and you will be his child. And God's got a plan and a purpose for every one of you here who today would say, I want to live for him. Number two, the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits gives us hope. We have hope because Jesus rose from the dead. Because that tomb was empty almost 2,000 years ago, that the people that we love that have gone to be with the Lord, who are in the Lord, that we will see them again. We have hope as the days move forward and we get news that we're nearing the end of our lives, that our, our hope and our trust is in Him. And finally, if at a time you find yourself doubting the resurrection, remember you're in good company. When the women came back to the disciples and said, the the tomb was empty and angels told us he was risen. The disciples said, ah, we don't believe you. When Jesus appeared (coughs) to the 10 disciples and Thomas was gone and they told Thomas, he's alive, we've seen him. Thomas said, I won't believe him unless I can touch his hands and his feet. And, And when he gave, the Great Commission on top of the mountain, which was an appointment. This is probably when 500 people were there. As some of them, it says, didn't believe. He's right there in front of them. And they're like, I don't think it's him. <laughs> they're doubting. So if you find yourself doubting, remember, you're asked to believe something that's supernatural. So it may take you really searching some things out. Take it to God. God doesn't have a problem. If you go to God and say, Lord, I'm really struggling with this. I'm wondering whether or not this is true. I'm wondering whether you can reveal this to me. God's not going to go, blasphemy. How dare you say that? (laughs) Take whatever struggles, whatever difficulties, whatever behavioral struggles you're having, whatever doubts you're having, take them to God and allow God to minister to you. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we can gather together this day and talk about the resurrection of Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us. Help us as we walk with you, know you, love you, and follow you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.